Well, before we start getting into the outline, I would just like to mention a few things. Um, you know, when we talk about the central line of the divine revelation, we're really talking about the great mystery of Christ in the church. You know, again, in Ephesians 5.32, Paul said, This mystery is great, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. And we know that in uh, Colossians 2.2, Christ is the mystery of God. In Ephesians 3.4, the church as the body of Christ is the mystery of Christ. And you put these two together, you have the great mystery, which is Christ and the church. This is the central line of the divine revelation. And, and Paul said in Ephesians 3.3, 3, he said, by revelation, the mystery was made known to me. So again, we need a spirit of wisdom and revelation to see these mysteries meeting by meeting, meeting by meeting. Uh, I would like to read to you uh, a few things that Brother Watchman Nee said that I think are very significant, uh, that have always touched me very deeply. And uh, he was talking about a verse in 2 Peter 1.12 where Peter says this. He says, I will always be ready to remind you of these things even though you know them and are established in the present truth. And, and Brother Nee wanted to, zeroed in on this phrase, the present truth. What is the present truth? And he said this. He said, we need to see, live, and practice the present truth, the up-to-date truth, in order to change the age and bring Christ back. That's a, quite a statement. That we need to see, live, and practice the present truth, the up-to-date truth, in order to change the age and bring Christ back. Then he said this, we need to hear what the Spirit is speaking to the churches, the voice of God in the present hour. That's what we want to hear, right? We want to hear the voice of God in the present hour. What the Spirit is speaking to the churches right now. And then he went on to say, all the truths are in the Bible, but through man's foolishness, unfaithfulness, negligence, disobedience, and degradation, many truths were lost and hidden from man. These freshly revealed truths are not God's new inventions, rather they are man's new discoveries. Every worker of the Lord should inquire before God as to what the present truth is. And this is what we're talking about in this conference. I feel every message is the present truth. Uh, actually, every conference we have, we're into the present truth. C says God's truths are cumulative. Later truths do not negate the former ones. What we see today are the cumulative revelations of God. Today we are living in the tide of God's will, which is a continuation of all past works of God in the previous ages. May God be gracious to us so that we do not become castaways of the present truth. In other words, we want to be those who see, live, and practice the present truth, the up-to-date truth in this age, so that we can bring Christ back to set up his kingdom on this earth. Okay, now, uh, the title of this message, this particular message is very precious to me. It's a message we shared in the past in the Crystallization Study of Mark, but I felt, I felt strongly that we didn't do the message justice when we gave it. And so uh, 
I, want, I have the burden to go through this again. It's a very, very precious word. You can see the title is Living in the Reality of the Body of Christ According to the Bird's Eye View of the Reality in Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. So we want to live in the reality of the body of Christ according to the bird's eye view. You know, you want a bird's eye view. That means you're up very, very high. And you want to see the entire Gospel of Mark, the reality in Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Now, we will talk about what we mean by the reality in Jesus here in just a minute. This is I'll read some of the verses to you from the Scripture reading. In Ephesians 4.20, it says, You did not so learn Christ. Then verse 21 says, If indeed you have heard of Him and have been taught in Him, as the reality is in Jesus. Well, what is the reality in Jesus? The reality in Jesus is this. Jesus lived a life in the Gospels in which He did everything in God, with God, for God, and by God. God was in His living, and He was one with God. That is the reality in Jesus. I'll say that again. Jesus lived a life in every, in, that in everything He did. He did everything in God. He did everything with God. He did everything for God. And He did, and he did everything by God. God was in His living, and He was one with God. That is the reality in Jesus. Now, what we want... Okay, another thing I would say is this. The reality in Jesus is the actual condition of the life of Jesus as recorded in the four Gospels. So, when we talk about the reality in Jesus again, we are talking about the actual condition of the life of Jesus as recorded in the four Gospels. We want that actual condition of His life to be reproduced in us. Corporately, we want to do everything in God, with God, for God, and by God. We want to be able to say, God is in my living, and I am one with God. You see, we want His life reproduced in us. That is the reality in Jesus. Now, uh, I've got one set of scriptures here, Mark 4, 23-25. This says this, and this will prepare us for the message. It says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, take heed what you hear. With what measure you measure, it shall be measured to you, and it shall be added to you. For he who has, it shall be given to him, and he who does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. Now what does this mean? It means the measure that can be given to us by the Lord depends on the measure of our hearing. What the Lord can give us depends on the measure of our hearing. Even in this meeting, how much the Lord can give us of himself depends on the measure of our hearing. So we need to have a prayer in us, Lord, increase the measure of my hearing. Give me an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Anyway, that's that's some precious verses here. Now here's another precious set of verses that apply to our meeting together. This is Mark 8. 22 through 26. This says, They came to Bethsaida, and they brought to him a blind man and entreated him to touch him. And he took hold of the hand of the blind man and led him forth outside the village. This is very significant. He led him forth outside the village. And he spat on his eyes and laid his hands on him and asked him, 
Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them as trees walking. Sometimes we're like this. The Lord lays his hands on us and he says, do you see anything? And you say, I see men as trees walking. That means you don't see clearly. You see something, but you don't see clearly. Even you see in a distorted way. Because those aren't trees walking. Those are actual men. You see the point. Okay, so then, then it says this. Then again, he laid his hands upon his eyes. And the man looked intently and was restored. Listen to this. I like this. And he began to see all things clearly. And he sent him to his house and he said, do not even enter into the village. Now what this denotes is that we need a private and intimate time with the Lord. Just like he had with this blind man. We need a private and intimate time with the Lord so that we can receive his infusion for a further recovery of our sight. So I hope, I hope sometime this weekend we would have a private, very private and intimate time with the Lord so that he could infuse us with his element so that we could have a full recovery of our sight. So we don't just see men as trees walking, but we, but we begin to see all things clearly. All things clearly. Okay, um, now we have another set of verses, and this will be later, later in the outline, but I'd like to read them to you now and just comment on them briefly. This was, this was after he fed the 5,000. After he fed the 5,000, it says, Immediately he compelled his disciples to step into the boat and go before to the other side toward Bethsaida, while he sent the crowd away. And after he said farewell to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. And Saints, his going away to the mountain to pray is a picture of his ascension. And he is in ascension right now, and in ascension... He is praying for us. Amen. Hebrews 7.25 says that he always lives to intercede for us. So he is on the mountain of his ascension. He is praying for each one of us right now. Now listen to this. And when evening fell, the boat was in the midst of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And seeing them distressed as they rowed, for the wind was contrary to them. Saints, many times in the journey in our Christian life, we are, we are rowing. We are rowing. And the Lord is praying for us, and we are distressed as we row. And the wind is contrary to us. In fact, I would say this. Uh, Brother Nee has an has a, has a article on this in Volume 10 of the Collected Works. You can read it. It's called The Last Part of the Journey. The Last Part of the Journey. Brother Nee says this. If the wind is not contrary to you in your Christian life and church life, there's something wrong with the path you're taking. You see, the wind, the wind, the enemy hates us so much that he sends the wind to be contrary to us. You see, so if the wind is contrary to you, that is a good sign. If you are distressed as you're rowing, that is a good sign. That means you are on the path God has ordained for you. Then it says he came toward them about the fourth watch of the night. The fourth watch of the night is from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. That is the darkest part of the night. Saints, according to Romans 13, 12, it says the night is far advanced and the day of the Lord's coming is near. Saints, the night is far advanced. It's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. 
I would, I would say this to you. Don't give up. Amen. Don't give up. The daytime of his coming is right around the bend. It's right around the bend. At the darkest time, that's when morning is right at the, right at the, is right there. It's right there. Okay, the fourth watch of the night, and he was walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought that it was a ghost, and they cried out. For they all saw him and were startled. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And he went up unto them into the boat, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly astonished in themselves beyond measure. Anyway, I'll just say that in themselves. They were greatly astonished in themselves beyond measure. Now Mark 9, 7 through 9. It says, a cloud appeared overshadowing them. You remember in Mark 9, 7 through 9, uh, the whole context here is that they saw the Lord Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration conversing with Moses and Elijah. And then, uh, then of course, Peter, who is a representative of us all, he's our representative. We're just like him. He said, let's make three tabernacles, Lord, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then a cloud came. And it overshadowed them. And it says, and a voice came out of the cloud and says, this is my son, the beloved. Hear him. I just love these words. Hear him. Don't hear your opinion. Don't hear your concept. Don't hear this person. Don't hear that person. We are here, H-E-R-E, to H-E-A-R him. We're here to hear him. And suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone but Jesus only with them. I love these two words, Jesus only. That's what the Lord's recovery is. The Lord's recovery is a recovery of Jesus only. God's desire is to have a recovery purely and wholly of the person of Christ. So we are here for Jesus only. You know, if you're here for something besides Jesus... You'll be disappointed because all that's here is Jesus. All that's in this meeting is Jesus, right? Okay, now Mark 10, 45. It says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the Son of Man did not come to be served, but he came to serve. In the past, he served us by giving his life for us. He served us. Since according to Luke 22, 26 and 27, verses 26 and 27, He is serving us in the present. He said, I am in your midst as one who serves. Now, most of the time, we, we feel, and it's right that we should feel this way, we feel we should serve Him. But saints, what I want us to see, what I want us to really see, is He is serving us. We cannot serve him if he doesn't serve us first. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Then he says, I am in your midst as one who serves. Saints, he is in our midst right now, and he is serving us with himself. Amen. Then in the Millennial Kingdom, in Luke twelve thirty-seven, it says that in the Millennial Kingdom, we will sit down at a table, and he will serve us. He will serve us with all the unsearchable riches of Christ in the millennial kingdom. Isn't that wonderful? So he served us in the past. He's serving us in the present. He will serve us in the future. Oh, praise the Lord for such a Lord. 
Now, lastly, Mark 16, 7. This is when the angel, when the angel saw the sisters at the gravesite. And uh, Peter had just failed the Lord three times. Again, he's our representative. We failed the Lord at least three times, right? At least, right? Okay. But anyway, it says this. The angel said this, Go tell his disciples and Peter, and Peter, that he is going before you into into Galilee. There you will see him, even as he told you. Now these words, and Peter, are only in the Gospel of Mark. They're not in Matthew, they're not in Mark, they're not in Luke. I'm sorry, they're not in Matthew, they're not in Luke, they're not in John. They're only in Mark, because Mark was, John, was Peter's spiritual son. And many expositors, rightly so, they, they say that probably Peter dictated this gospel to Mark, and Mark wrote it down. So Peter remembered those words, and Peter. Matthew, Luke, and John, they just... And Peter, that does you know, big deal, you know. <laughs> but, 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 but Peter remembered it. He heard those words, and Peter, that meant something. That meant, that meant the Lord didn't forget me. Even though I failed the Lord, he still cares about me. Isn't that wonderful? Absolutely wonderful. Okay, now we'll see this as we go through the outline. Now, Roman number one says, the desire of God's heart is that the reality in Jesus, the God-man living of Jesus as recorded in the four Gospels, would be duplicated in the many members of Christ's body by the spirit of reality to become the reality of the body of Christ, the highest peak in God's economy. The highest peak in God's economy. So this is a marvelous statement. We want his God-man living in the Gospels to be duplicated in us by the spirit of reality And that becomes the reality of the body of Christ. And that reality of the body of Christ is the highest peak in God's economy. The highest peak in God's economy. Now, um, if you look at Ephesians, I don't have all these verses down here. But there's a section in Ephesians uh, that includes verses 18, verse 21, and verse 30. That talks about the living needed in our daily walk. Ephesians is a very high book. It talks about God's eternal purpose. It talks about seven aspects of the church, the body, the new man, the kingdom, all these different, the warrior, the wife, all these aspects of the church. But it also talks about the living needed in our daily walk. And when it talks about the living needed in our daily walk in chapter 4, it, it talks about the triune God. It's so wonderful. Firstly, in verse 18, it mentions the life of God which is the life of God the Father. It says, do not be estranged from the life of God, as the Gentiles are. You see, it's possible for us as believers to walk the way the nations walk. Because Paul said, do not walk as the nations walk in the vanity of their mind, in the darkness of their understanding, estranged from the life of God. You see, so it's possible for us to walk, we have to realize this, If we don't exercise our spirit, if we don't use our spirit, if we don't care for our spirit, then we're living in the vanity of our mind. And we're living just like an unbeliever. Are you with me? Don't think that you can't live as an unbeliever. It's possible. This is why we want to be spirit-exercising people. We want to live in our spirit. We want to walk according to the spirit. 
We don't want to live in the vanity, the emptiness of our mind, in the darkness of our understanding. We don't want to be alienated from the life of God. Where is the life of God? The life of God is in our spirit. You see, that's verse 18. Then in verse 21, you have what we call, what we've referred to already as the reality in Jesus. And the reality in Jesus is the actual condition of the life of Jesus as recorded in the four Gospels. The reality in Jesus is the practicality of the life of the Father. It's the practice of the life of the Father in verse 18. So Jesus lived by the Father. He spoke the Father's word. He did the Father's work. He sought the Father's will. He he sought the Father's glory. He didn't do anything out of himself. Everything he did was out of the Father. He lived because of the Father. So the reality in Jesus, the actual condition of the life of Jesus recorded in the four Gospels, is the practicality or the practice of the life of the Father. Then you come to verse 30 of chapter 4, and verse 30 of chapter 4 talks about the Holy Spirit of God. It says that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of God unto the day of redemption. That's unto the day of the redemption of our body, which is the Lord's coming. We were sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. And, and the, to be sealed, you know when you seal something, first you have the ink applied to the paper, right? If I have a seal, I apply the ink to the paper. Not only do you have the ink, you have the image of that seal is applied to the paper. Are you with me? Not only that, when I seal that, it implies that I own this thing. I own this thing. If I seal my Bible, that means the ink is applied to the paper. It it, it implies the image is applied to the paper. It implies that I own this Bible. You see this. So when the Lord seals us, when the Lord seals us, he puts his divine and mystical heavenly ink into our being. Then he stamps his image on our being. Then when he stamps us, it says, you belong to Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? And I tell you, he is stamping his seal on our being all the time. And he's sealing us with the reality in Jesus, which is the practicality of the life of the Father. That's the whole triune God. He's sealing us in this way. You know, when I was a little boy, my father was a printer. And I would come to visit him. Sometimes I, I must have been around five years old. I come to visit him, and uh, of course he's printing. He, he asked, it, what, "What is he going to do with me?" You know what I mean? I'm just there in the printing shop. So he said, "Okay, I'd sit down here." And he would get me. He had all these seals, you know, that you stamp things with. And so he would get me a piece of paper. He would get me an ink pad, and he would get me a a seal. And then I'd go like this. I go. I had so much fun doing that. And he would say, oh, Eddie, that's wonderful. You know, let, let's, you know, let's put that on the refrigerator, you know. You know, like a work of art, you know. Abstract, like Van Gogh or something. I don't know. You know, anyway. <laughs> but, but this is what the Lord's doing with us. You know that? When you call the Lord, it's, oh, Lord Jesus. He, then, then, you, then you, you, you go to school. It gets faster. You come to the full-time training. You have a child. 
And when you have four boys, it's... Right? It's all kinds of situations. All kinds of situations, all kinds of environments, all kinds of circumstances, all kinds of people. He is sealing us with his element. And that element is the reality in Jesus, which is the practicality of the life of the Father. Okay, A says, The reality of the body of Christ is the corporate living of the perfected God-men who live the divine life of their new man by denying the natural life of their old man according to the model of Christ as the first God-man. According to the model of Christ as the first God-man. Now, such a model, you know, when we build up such a model of, of living Christ, let me read this again. The reality of body of Christ is the corporate living of the perfected God-man who live the divine life of their new man by denying the natural life of their old man according to the model of Christ as the first God-man. So we deny the life of our old man, we live by the life of our new man, and we do this according to the life of Christ as the, as the, uh, as the first God-man. Then we build up a corporate model. We build up a corporate model of living a God-man life by the divine life. Now, such a model, such a corporate model, here we are in this room, if, if by the Lord's mercy we can build up a corporate model of living a God-man life by the divine life, this model will be the greatest revival in the history of the church to bring the Lord back. Isn't that a great thing? That's a great, great thing. And that will be a new revival. That will be the greatest revival in the history of the church. There's never been a group of people on this earth who have lived in a, a corporate living of the perfected God-man, who lived a God-man life by denying their human life. And this is what we aspire to do and to be. This is the reality of the body of Christ. The reality of the body of Christ. Now in 1 Peter 2.21, this verse says, To this you were called, because Christ also suffered on your behalf, leaving you a model so that you may follow in his steps. Leaving you a model so that you may follow in his steps. You know, the, a model here, if you read the footnote to the recovery version, it's actually a model is a writing copy. It's an underwriting. It's like you put a, you have a sheet of paper here and you put another sheet of paper over it and you can see the letters through the sheet and then you trace the letters like this. So it's not, it's not an imitation. It's an, actual, it's an actual Xerox, Xerox copy of Christ's life. You see, Christ wants to Xerox his life into our being. And so that our life is a Xerox copy of his life. Now B says, the reality of the body of Christ is the spirit of reality, who is the spirit of Jesus mingled with our spirit. The spirit of Jesus includes the reality in Jesus, the God-man living of Jesus. So the spirit of Jesus is the spirit of a God-man. It's the spirit of a man, a capital M man. And this spirit of this God-man is in our spirit. It's the spirit of his human life glorified into union with the divine life. Saints, there's not just a man in the glory. There's a man in our spirit. Isn't that wonderful? This man in the glory 
is the man in our spirit. And this, his life in our spirit is for us. Is for us. Now John 16, 13 says something very wonderful that I want to encourage us to pray. It says, when he, the spirit of reality, comes, he will guide you into all the reality. I'll just say that much. Saints, we need to pray, Lord, as the spirit of reality, guide me into all the reality. Guide me into all the reality of what you are. Guide me into the reality that's in Jesus, which is the life of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels. Guide me into this reality. Guide me into the reality of the triune God, because the Father's word is is reality. The Son is the reality, and the Spirit is the reality, according to the Bible. It says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's the Father's word. Then the Lord says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's the reality. In 1 John 5, 6, it says the Spirit is the truth, or the Spirit is the reality. So to guide us into all the reality is to guide us into all that the triune God is. So we need to pray, Lord, as the Spirit of reality, guide me into all the reality. Okay, see, when we live in the mingled spirit, we are learning Christ according to the reality in Jesus by the spirit of reality. Let me just say this before I read this. You know, to learn Christ, it's sub- this is not objective. This is subjective. We are his disciples. We are lear- To be a disciple is to be a learner. If you stop being a learner, you stop being a Christian. You see what I mean? A disciple is a learner. What are we learning? We are learning Christ subjectively, not objectively, subjectively, experientially. It's just like if you learn, how can you learn mashed potatoes? One time I asked, uh, who was it? Uh, it was Brother Titus Boswell. You know Titus, right? Do you know Titus? He used to live in Israel, right? Titus, yeah. Anyway, Titus is from Oklahoma. And I asked him one time, I said, Titus, what is your favorite food? He was sitting on the front row. He said, mashed potatoes. And, and I said, oh, you must be from Oklahoma. You know what I mean? Mashed potatoes. Okay. So I said, well, how do you learn mashed potatoes? You know, if you want to learn mashed potatoes, you don't study it and, you know, get into the molecular structure of mashed potatoes and see how much butter is on there and measure the butter. You eat the mashed potatoes. You taste the mashed potatoes. You don't throw it at somebody, right? You, you subjectively taste the mashed potatoes. And so in the same way, we learn, how do we learn Christ? We learn Christ by eating Christ. We learn him by eating him as our spiritual food. We learn him by touching him, by seeing him, by hearing him. With all of our spiritual senses, we taste him, we hear him, we see him, we touch him. You see, you see this? It's, it's a subjective learning of Christ. So when we live in the mingled spirits, he says, we are learning Christ according to the reality in Jesus, by the spirit of reality, according to his model as the slave savior in the gospel of Mark, so that his biography becomes our history. His biography becomes our history. The living of the body of Christ as the new man should be exactly the same as the living of Jesus revealed in the Gospel of Mark. Revealed in the Gospel of Mark. Saints, here's another point. 
Romans 11, 17 and 24 says that we have been grafted into Christ. We've been grafted into Christ. If, if, since we've been grafted into Christ, you know, this is a poor illustration, forgive me, but let's say this is Christ and I, gra- I graft a branch into Christ, right? We're the branches. We've been grafted into Christ. That means the history of that tree that cultivated olive tree. He's the cultivated olive tree. We're the wild branches of the wild olive tree. We've been grafted into the cultivated olive tree. Then the history of this tree becomes our history. Isn't that amazing? The history of that tree. Everything that tree has gone through becomes our history. The biography of that, of that tree becomes our biography. And, and by, by the life juice, you know, going into the branch, the branch gets replaced with Christ. You know, not exchanged, but replaced with Christ. Replaced with Christ's element, essence, uh, living, and uh, an element. Okay. Now, uh, I would say this. Before we come to some of these verses here. Since we have to realize the Lord's recovery is only possible in our mingled spirit. The Lord's recovery is only possible in our mingled spirit. If we don't live in our mingled spirit, there's no recovery. There's no reality in Jesus. That's why in the, in the book of Ephesians, the mingled spirit, the human spirit, the mingled spirit is mentioned six times. Here you have a book on the reality of the body of Christ. And the mingled spirit is mentioned at least six times. In Ephesians 1.17, you have a spirit of wisdom and revelation. In Ephesians 2.22, you have the dwelling place of God in spirit. In Ephesians 3.5, you have the revelation to the holy apostles and prophets in spirit. In Ephesians 3.16, you have our being strengthened into our inner man, which is our mingled spirit. In Ephesians 4.23, you have we're being renewed in the spirit of our mind. In Ephesians 5.18, we're being filled in spirit. And in Ephesians 6.18, we pray it every time in spirit. That's six times. Six times the mingled spirit is mentioned in a book on the reality of the body of Christ. Okay, now under, under, uh, after C, we have a few verses I would like to mention uh, that which talks about the living of the body of Christ as the new man should be exactly the same as the living of Jesus revealed in the Gospel of Mark. When Galatians 6, 17, and 18, Paul says, Henceforth let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the brands of Jesus. The brands of Jesus. Now these brands that Paul was talking about were the marks branded on slaves to indicate their owners. To indicate their owners. It was kind of a, a terrible thing back then. That they would actually brand slaves to indicate who they belonged to. But Paul was using it in a positive sense. He said, he said here, he said, I bear in my body the brands of Jesus. In other words, when you look at me, you can see that I belong to Jesus. Amen. When you look at me, you can see the characteristics of Christ's life in me. And you can see that I belong to Jesus and that his life has been reproduced in me. In Romans 1.9, Paul says, For God is my witness, whom I serve in my spirit, in the gospel of his Son. Again, we should pray over these verses. We should bring them into our prayer language with the Lord and say, Lord, I want you to be my witness that I serve in, in my spirit, 
in the gospel of your son. We have to serve in our spirit. Okay, Roman numeral 2 says we need to live in the reality of the body of Christ by entering into the reality of the gospel of Mark through the spirit of reality. Now A says the biography of Jesus in the gospel of Mark is also our biography, our history with Peter as our representative. With Peter as our representative. You know, hymns number 949, stanza 4, says this. It says, Christ is the hope of glory. He is my history. His life is my experience, for he is one with me. Isn't that wonderful? He is my history. His life is my experience, for he is one with me. Now, we read Mark 16, 7 about Ann Peter. Now, let me read to you what one says under here. Let's read one all together. So you can put and Peter in quotes. It should be in quotation marks. And Peter. The phrase and Peter, quotation marks, is inserted only in Mark's record. Because Peter could never forget these words, and Peter. And Peter, go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him even as he told you. Now just before this, Peter had committed a great sin of denying the Lord three times. Two says, even though Peter had committed the great sin of denying the Lord three times, the Lord specifically mentioned him, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. Listen, the third time that Peter denied him, it says this. He denied him so bad. It says this. He began to curse and to swear. He says, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered the word how Jesus had said to him, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And thinking upon it, he wept. He wept. You see, so Peter denied the Lord three times, but then he heard this word, and Peter. So even though he committed this great sin of denying the Lord three times, the Lord specifically mentioned him. It was like he was mentioning and said, Peter. I haven't given up on you. I will never give up on you. Now, we've got Luke 15, 1 through 7, as one of the verse, one of the verse references here. Luke 15, 1 through 7. The Lord doesn't give up on any sheep. On any sheep. He has a hundred sheep, and one of the sheep leaves, and he doesn't say this. You know, in our natural being, we would say this if we were the shepherd. We would say, Oh, well, I've got 99 left. You know, it's just one. No problem. No problem. Well, eventually there's going to be 98. And you're going to say, oh, there's only two left. 98. There's going to be three. 97. Pretty soon it's going to be you and one sheep. And you're not going to have anyone left to shepherd. R- really, I'm not, I'm not kidding you. If you. You have to foster. There has to be a spirit and an atmosphere fostered in the church that we don't want to lose one person. We don't want to lose one person. So the Lord says this when he tells his parable. You'll remember this. He says, 
Which man of you has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness? Listen to this. And go after the one which is lost until he finds it. I like this word until. He goes after the one which is lost until he finds it. You know, many times, maybe there are some not meeting with us now. Some we're praying for. Listen, they are still in the until stage. He will find them. Don't give up on anybody. The Lord doesn't, the Lord hasn't given up on us, has he? He hasn't. He doesn't, give, he doesn't allow us to give up on anybody. Because he doesn't give up on anyone. So he says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner repenting than over 99 righteous persons who have no need of repentance. Of course, everyone needs to repent. We'll see this later. Everyone needs repentance. It's just that these 99 righteous were actually self-righteous, right? They thought they were righteous and actually they weren't righteous. But there's joy in heaven when we go after the sheep that are lost and cooperate with the Lord to bring them back. Aren't you thankful for the shepherding you've received through the years? I'm very, very thankful. I don't know where I'd be if the saints hadn't prayed for me and shepherded me. I, I just don't know where. I, 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 I don't even want to think about it for that long. It's terrible. You know, I, I, told, I told you this story before. Forgive me, I'm repeating myself. But I remember when I was a brand new one, I was in a prayer meeting in a home. And I was having a very hard time. I couldn't get through to the Lord. I, didn't, I couldn't pray. I couldn't do anything. So I went to a prayer meeting in a home. You know, when you go to a prayer meeting in a home, you can't hide. There's no place to hide. So I'm, I'm there and I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there and, and I can't pray. I can't pray and I'm just there. And, and I was thinking to myself, as soon as this prayer meeting is over, I am out of here. I'm just running right out the door. You know, as soon as they're done praying, I'm gone. So I was looking for a chance. You know how sometimes the saints will pray and then they'll pray again. I was going like this, you know. And another prayer, and I'm like, what this? <laughs> Finally, the prayer was over, and I just, I just got up, and I started to run out the door, and this brother was sitting next to me, and he just reached out his arm and grabbed me. It was like he had one of those rubber arms, you know what I mean? He, just went, <laughs> he grabbed me and sat me back down by him. And, uh, you know, and of course, I couldn't fight the brother. What could I do? You know what I mean? He, just, he grabbed me, and he, said, he just said to me, he goes, Ed, what's wrong? I'm concerned about you. And, and I was able to open up to him. And that saved me that night. I was just saved. I, I mean, who knows where I would have ended up. I don't know what would have happened to me. But just because of one brother's concern, I was shepherded. And I was brought back to the Lord. To touch the Lord again. As a new one. As a younger one. And we all need shepherding. It doesn't matter how old we are. Don't we need shepherding? It doesn't matter how long you've been around, how old you are as a Christian, how long you've been in recovery. You need shepherding. Amen. You need shepherding. You know, he, even my son, my youngest son, he, he tries to shepherd me. He's not very spiritual. But he'll, uh, he'll, 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 he might see that maybe I'm having a hard time or something. He'll say, here, Dad, he'll bring me a Coca-Cola. He'll say, here, Dad, have a Coke. And, my mom, and Ruthie will say, don't give your dad that Coke. <laughs> That's his way of shepherding me, you see? That's just us. It's very sweet, you know? Anyway, 
So there's a struggle there whether to have the Coke or not have the Coke. <laughs> That's the transformation right there. <laughs> okay. Now, Peter failed the Lord three times. But in John 21, the Lord had breakfast with him. This is the way the Lord recovered Peter. He had breakfast with him. Isn't that wonderful? You know, sometimes we can recover people by having a meal with them, taking them out for lunch or breakfast. I'm I'm serious. You just, you pray for them, and then you have a meal for them, and meal with them. And the Lord, of course, you remember Peter and and the disciples, they they were fishing, and they couldn't catch any fish all night. And and the Lord was on the shore. That whole story is just wonderful. I can't tell the whole story. But he says, he said, children, do you have any fish? And they said, no. And then he said, you know, put the net on the other side. And they put the net on the other side. And they pulled up and there was this full of fish. And John looked at Peter and he said, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. And Peter just dove off the boat and he swam in the shore. You know, that's the way Peter was. You know, forget about the boat. I'm swimming in the shore. The Lord's there. You know, and he was there. He got to shore. They got to shore. Peter got there first. And they all got there, and the Lord was cooking fish on the fire. They couldn't catch any fish in the sea. He had it on the land. Isn't that wonderful? They had fish for breakfast. Just wonderful. Okay, so anyway, um, um, then the Lord said to Peter three times, he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He asked him three times because Peter denied him three times said, Peter, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know, you know that I love you. And so he said to him, feed my lambs. And then he said again, do you love me? He said, shepherd my sheep. And he said, do you love me? He said, feed my sheep. In other words, Peter, it's almost like he was saying, Peter, now you are qualified to shepherd and feed my sheep because you failed. If you had never failed, you would be so proud, you, no one would be able to approach you. It's true. He thought he was better than all the other disciples. He said, if they all deny you, I will never deny you. You know, they need to turn to their spirit. I mean, they're just, you know, they're, anyway. That's the way he was. He was so proud of his, of his quote, quote, love for the Lord. But then he realized that he needed the Lord to be his absoluteness. And my absoluteness means nothing. I need the Lord to be my absoluteness. So that made him sendable, that made him a shepherd. And he was recovered back to loving the Lord Jesus. So saints, look at three. Three is wonderful. It says this, and Peter means and you. And Peter means and you, who have failed like Peter. Revealing that although we fail the Lord, it is impossible for him to forget us, forsake us, give up on us, or not love us. If we fall, he will not desert us, and he can make us rise up again for his economy. Saints, it's never too late. It's never too late. Let's read three all together. And Peter...
Isn't that wonderful, saints? I just think that is so priceless. Now, some of these verses under here, like Romans 14.4, it says, Who are you who judges another's household servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will be made to stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Sometimes I've had to pray that and say, Lord, you're able to make me stand. Make me stand in this situation. In Romans 14, 7 and 8, it says, None of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For whether we live, we live to the Lord. Whether we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. In Deuteronomy 31, 6, Be strong and take courage. Do not fear. Neither be terrified of them. For it is Jehovah your God who goes with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. Joshua 1.5 No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13.5 says, I shall by no means give you up, neither by any means shall I abandon you. Now listen to what the Amplified Version says. I want you to listen to what the Amplified Bible says. This is marvelous. It says, For he, God himself, has said, I will not in any way fail you, nor give you up, nor leave you without support. I will not, I will not, I will not in any degree leave you helpless, nor forsake you, nor let you down, relax my hold on you. Assuredly not. That's the Amplified Bible. And, and Weist, who's an expert in the Greek, he said there's three negatives that precede that verb. Three negatives. That's why I said, I will not, I will not, I will not in any degree leave you helpless. Isn't that wonderful? That's the Lord's care for us. Isaiah 49, 14 through 16 says this. Zion has said, Jehovah has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. You know, sometimes, sometimes the enemy might put that in our mind. Jehovah has forsaken me. The Lord's forgotten me. But then, then the Lord goes on. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she would not have compassion on the son of her womb? Even though they may forget, yet I will not forget you. Indeed, I have engraved you upon the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. In Jeremiah 29, 11-14. I know the thoughts that I think about you, declares Jehovah, thoughts of peace and not for evil, to give you a latter end and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me, if you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares Jehovah, and I will turn your captivity and gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares Jehovah, and bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. I believe that's happening in Israel today. Even with the, even with the, earthly, the earthly heirs of Abraham. He's bringing them back. Okay, Proverbs 24, 16. Listen to this. A righteous man falls seven times and rises up again. How about that? Seven times is completion. That means you fall seven times. Don't say you've never fallen. You have fallen completely. But because Christ is in you and he's the righteous one, 
you will rise up again. Then Song of Songs 8.6 says this, and this is a good prayer to pray. Set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, jealousy is as cruel as Sheol, its flashes are the flashes of fire, a flame of Jehovah. So for him to set us as a seal means he sets us indelibly as a seal on his heart of love and as a seal on his arm of strength and power. This means we become a part of his heart, heart of love, and we become a part of his arm of strength and power. And we need to pray this prayer. Pray this prayer to the Lord. Now B says, Mark 6, 45-52, reveals that we need to seek out the journey, the course, that the Lord has ordained for us according to his perfect will and to enjoy him as our heavenly minister and high priest, the one who is interceding for us and sustaining us to finish our course in living a heavenly life on earth for the reality of the body of Christ. Now, I read these verses to you at the beginning of the message about how the disciples were distressed as they rode and the wind was contrary to them and it was the fourth watch of the night and the Lord is there in ascension and he's there praying for us. He's praying for us. He went away to the mountain to pray. Um, And saints... I would just like to say this before I go on to one. Um, Saints, we have to pray, Lord, have mercy on me that I would finish my course on this earth. You know, we all have a general course to run. Paul said, I have finished the course. I have, in 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8, he said, I have finished my, the course, the course. And 1 Corinthians 9, I believe, verse 24, says that, says that the Christian life is like a race course. Like a race course for all of us, for all of us. But in Acts 20, 24, Paul says, in order that I might finish my course, my course. You see, in the general course of the Christian race, each one of us has our particular function. We have our particular duty before the Lord. We have our particular journey in the Lord. That is our particular course. So we need to pray, Lord, grant me mercy that I might finish my course on this earth. Whatever that is, grant me mercy that I might finish the journey that you have ordained for me. Whatever that is, in the body of Christ, through the body of Christ, and for the body of Christ. It's not individualistic, it's corporate. But it's your personal function and personal duty and and personal journey in the body of Christ and personal destiny in the body of Christ. Now one says this, From the ascension of Christ to his coming again, the world is in a long night. The night is far advanced. Our boat is in the midst of the sea, and we still have not reached the destination of our journey. Okay, number two. We need to realize that the journey of faithful believers is one that is contrary to the wind, and they experience being distressed. As they row. We need to take the Lord into our boat. Our married life. Our family. Our business etc. And enjoy peace with him. On the journey of human life. As soon as they took the Lord into their boat. They arrived at the place where they were going. They had peace with him. On the journey of their life. Saints but again I say. You know, I just like to emphasize this point. 
The journey of faithful believers is one that is contrary to the wind. If you're a faithful believer, your journey will be contrary to the wind. It's easy to go along with the wind. But if, you, if you're faithful to the Lord, your journey will be one that is contrary to the wind. And you will experience being distressed as you row. But we need to enjoy the Lord in the middle of that situation. We need to contact Him. We need to take Him into our boat, into our circumstance, and into our situation. Now 3 says, In these days, just before the dawn of the Lord's coming, we need to stand against the wearing out tactics of Satan, be empowered in the grace which is in Christ Jesus, and receive mercy from the Lord to be faithful. Listen to this. To take the journey that he has ordained. To take the journey that he has ordained for the building up of his body, his bride, to bring him back. To bring him back. You see, Satan has wearing out tactics. In Daniel 7.25, it says concerning the Antichrist, it says he will wear out the saints of the Most High. And saints, Satan wants to wear us out. He wants to wear out our consecration. Maybe we used to be so consecrated to the Lord, but little by little, he doesn't do it all at once. You know, if, 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 if someone came in here and, and turned off the light switches in this room, and the room went dark, right away we would know. You know, if, if everything went dark in our being, we know that's the enemy. But the enemy does it almost like a light dimmer. You know, he dims the light a little bit one day, then the next day he dims it a little bit more. And dims a little bit more until eventually the light in your being is very dim. But to you, to you, it is it's still bright. It's still bright. But it's not. He switched the light dimmer down very low, little by little, gradually, gradually. So we have to stand against the wearing out tactics of Satan. We have to stand he tries to wear out our absoluteness. We used to be so absolute for the Lord. Maybe we're not that absolute like we used to be. We need to pray, Lord. Be my absoluteness. I don't stand for this. I'm not absolute apart from you, Lord. But I take you as my absoluteness. I take you as my consecration. I take you as my ram of consecration. You know, in Exodus and Leviticus, there's a ram called the ram of consecration. That's a strong Christ for assuming our duties in our priesthood. We need him as the ram of consecration. So anyway, we have to stand against the wearing out tactics of Satan. And we have to be empowered in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. I like what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.1. He says, you therefore, my child, be empowered in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. You therefore, my child. You know, in a sense, I know we all have spiritual fathers in the Lord's recovery. But in another sense, we're all Paul's spiritual children. We've been fostered by Paul, right? In, In the Lord's recovery. So this word is to us, you therefore, my child, be empowered in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. Okay, now we come to C. C says, in order to enter into the reality of the gospel of Mark, we need to repent. We need to repent. Amen. To have a change of mind with regret for the past and a turn for the future. To repent is to turn from all things other than God to God himself. One says, on the negative side, to repent before God is not only to repent of sins and wrongdoings, but also to repent of the world and its corruption, which usurp and corrupt people 
whom God created for himself, and to repent of our God-forsaking life in the past. Now, two says, on the positive side, it is to turn to God in every way and in everything for the fulfillment of his purpose in creating man. It is a repentance unto God. It is to repent and turn to God. Repent and turn to God. You know, if you look at Revelation 2 and 3, and you look at the epistles to the seven churches there in Revelation 2 and 3, again and again, he tells them to repent. To repent, repent. To Ephesus, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Laodicea. He tells them to repent. The only ones he doesn't tell to repent are Smyrna and Philadelphia. You know, because Smyrna was faithful, faithful martyrs, full of faithful martyrs, and Philadelphia was a church of brotherly love. So there's no charge to repent there. But to all the other churches, he charges them to repent. Saints, I like what Zechariah 1.3 says. It says this, return to me, and I will return to you. You can also translate that, turn to me, and I will turn to you. It's very wonderful. You turn to the Lord, he turns to you. You return to him, he returns to you. Just like that prodigal son, he returned to, to the father, the father ran when he saw him. Right? You, re- you just make a turn to the father, and the father will run toward you. Father will run toward you. Okay, now we come to three. Repentance unto life, unto God's organic salvation in life, is a gift given to us from the exalted Christ. From the exalted Christ. You know, in Acts eleven eighteen. It said, when they heard these things, they became silent and glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has given repentance unto life. So repentance is a gift. It's repentance unto life. Number four, and I love number four. Christ, as the kindness of God, leads us to repentance. So that according to his mercy, we can be reconditioned, remade, and remodeled with him as life. In Romans 2.4, it says God's kindness is leading you to repentance. Saints, I can testify this as an unbeliever. What, what, what brought me to repentance was God's kindness through some believers. It was through some believers who were kind to me, who showed me God's kindness, that I ended up repenting. I ended up repenting. I had a professor in college who was a Christian, and I went to a secular college, it wasn't a Bible school, and he taught life and teachings of Jesus. It was, it was a very difficult course. Uh, my, one of my friends, he made straight A's his whole college career. That was the only B he made. He said, Ed, don't take that course. That course is not easy. Don't, don't let it fool you. He said, that's the only B I made. So I said, no, Rick, I'm still going to take it because I'm interested in, I want to find out a little bit about Jesus, about who he was, you know. So anyway, I took the course. And um, at the beginning of the course, he told the whole class that he was a Christian. And he said, I believe in the Lord Jesus. He's my Lord and Savior. And I want to let you know this because when I teach this course, I will teach it. My viewpoint cannot help but come out, you know, since I'm a Christian. And that just blew me away because he was a, he was a Rhodes Scholar. He was a professor emeritus. He was the former president of the university. He was a brilliant man, and he was a Christian. And I said, this is crazy. How could someone this smart be a Christian? You know what I mean? I I just thought it was an oxymoron. 
You know what I mean? Smart Christian. They don't they don't go together. You know what I mean? They don't they don't they don't they just don't go together. And so uh, uh, I began to observe him, and, and I noticed he was just so kind. He was he was kind toward me, and I couldn't understand why he was kind toward me. But his kindness toward me was God's kindness toward me, and he was very kind toward me. We were having a class discussion one time, and it was on Matthew five through seven which we know is the constitution of the kingdom of the heavens. Now I know about, about Matthew 5 through 7. I didn't know anything then. But all I knew, we were having a class discussion. All I knew was that it's impossible for any person to do this. And I said that in the class discussion. I said, I said Dr. Lindquist, it's impossible for any person to do this. Who can turn the other cheek? Who can walk the extra mile? Who can give someone their shirt when they ask for their suit? You know, that's my paraphrase, you know. Uh, who can do this? You know, and a lot of the Christians, they got upset when I said this. You know, they, and, of course, I like to get Christians upset in those days. You know what I mean? So, so they got upset. And, uh, <laughs> and, and he just said something. He said, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. He said, Mr. Marks has a good point. And I just went, oh, my goodness, he thought I had a good point. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was so, I was just melted by that. I was melted by that. He thought I had a good point. He's brilliant. He, he's, he's, he, was, he was an older man. He's brilliant. And he's a believer. And he thought I had a good point. He's different from these Christians. They're all mad at me. He's not mad at me. He thinks I have a good point. And he loves the Lord. See, he, re- he didn't misrepresent God to me. He represented God to me. You know, I owe him my salvation. I didn't get saved directly through him, but I owe him my salvation. Because I saw the Lord in that man. I saw the Lord in that man. I came to his office, and I wanted to get a recommendation for graduate school. And uh, I came in his office. This was after school was over, toward the end of school. And immediately when I came in, I was just ashamed, you know. I just felt ashamed. I realized later it was my conscience convicting me. You know what I mean? Because I had gone, I had gone down, and I, I, I had come up here like a naive young man in college, and then I just kind of went like this, you know. You know, if you're if you're an unbeliever, and and you come to college, the gravitational force of the law of sin and death is going to get you, you know. So anyway, I came to his office. And I was just convicted. I was just convicted. I said, I said, Dr. Lincoln, would you give me a recommendation? He said, Mr. Marks, I'd be glad to give you a recommendation. And I just went, he would, he's going to give me a recommendation, you know. And that's the reason why I went there in the first place. But I was shocked that he would do that. And then he said to me, he said, Mr. Marks, sit down. He said, how are you? How, how have you been? And uh, he was telling me about his family and everything. And then I said to him, I said, Dr. Lindquist, I said, will I ever find what I'm looking for? And he said to me, he said, don't worry, Mr. Mark, you'll find it. That, that was, he didn't have the mystery of human life like we do. You know, we would have pulled out the mystery of human life. <laughs> you know, but he said, he was a conservative Christian. He said, don't worry, Mr. Mark, you'll find it. Well, within a few months, I was in a laundromat and there was a track there and it said, I found it. I found it. And so I read that tract and I got saved. 
I got saved. But anyway, my point is, is the kindness of God leads you to repentance. It's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. It's not pharisaical activity that leads people to repentance, you know. Okay, where am I? Five. Repentance is a divine requirement of God's New Testament economy and a main item of its proclamation. D, in order to enter into the reality of the Gospel of Mark, we need to hear him and see Jesus only. One, we need to take heed to the way we hear the word of the Lord, asking the Lord to give us an ear to hear what the Spirit is speaking to the churches. The measure that can be given to us by the Lord depends on the measure of our hearing. Two, we need to have a private and intimate time with the Lord. Let's do that this weekend. So that he can infuse us with his element to recover our sight. We all need a further recovery so that we can see all things clearly. And let's read Roman numeral 3 all together. We need to live in the reality of the body of Christ according to the bird's eye view of the reality in Jesus in the Gospel of Mark which unveils a full picture of the slave Savior serving fallen sinners as a collective person with himself as their all-inclusive salvation. The life of the Lord Jesus as revealed in Mark is the reality, substance, and pattern of God's New Testament economy. The A says the Gospel of Mark shows the slave Savior coming as a physician with mercy and grace to heal and recover a complete sick person with four kinds of major diseases. Just as God desires to show mercy to pitiful sinners, so he wants us to show mercy and love to others. One, a fever may signify a person's unbridled temper, which is abnormal and intemperate. The slave savior heals our sick condition becoming our inward rest and quietness, and restores us to normality that we might serve him. This was Peter's mother-in-law. You remember she had a fever. The Lord healed her of her fever. Her fever left her, and she served the Lord. Well, saints, I would just like to say a little bit about temper. Now, this isn't a seminar on not losing your temper. But I'd like to say a little bit about losing your temper, because everyone in this room has lost their temper at least once. If you, if you haven't, you're not telling the truth. <laughs> okay, now listen to this. The root of temper is the self. The root of temper is our self, S-E-L-F. And to deal, to, to take care of some, uh, uh, your temper is to deal with the self in its various forms. Now, what are the various forms of the self? The first form of the, of the self is subjectivity. Subjectivity. Our self is very subjective. That means this. That means if someone doesn't agree with us or follow our way, we get angry. Someone doesn't agree with us, someone doesn't follow our way, we get angry. Subjectivity means it's based on or influenced by your personal feelings, tastes, or opinions. You have a personal feeling, you have a personal taste, you have a personal opinion. If someone doesn't agree with that and doesn't go along with that, the person gets angry. That's the self. You see that? That's the root of anger. Another root of anger, the self, is pride. That means you think highly of yourself. You consider yourself better than others. 
So as a result, there's jealousy. There's rivalry. In 3 John 9, it said Diotrephes loved to be first among the brothers. You see, that's the self. And that's why a person would lose his temper because of pride. He thinks he's better than others. We, we see this in ourselves and we see, we've seen this in our history. Anyway, I'm just thinking of one case. A person, a person that could have been very useful, but because of his pride, he's not, he's not that useful anymore. He's not that useful. It's sad. It's sad. Then you have self-love. Self-love means you are the most important person in the world. You have to have the best food. You have to have the best house. You have to have the best car. You have to stay in the best hotel. If others don't pamper your self-love, you lose your temper. That is the self. That is the self. That's terrible, isn't it? You go over a saint's house and they don't serve you filet mignon. So you get upset. You won't move to, the Lord wants you to move to Russia. You won't move because you won't have the best house. You see, when I went to Russia the first time, Benson Benson Phillips is a brother I served with for many years, you know. He had a big house in Texas. You know, everything's big in Texas, you know. (laughs) He had a big house. And then I went to see him. Him and Barbara were living in this small room. It was so small you had to go outside to change your mind. It was so small. I mean, I couldn't believe they they were living in this small room. They didn't care for their big house. They cared for the Lord's interest. Sorry about that. I was just trying to tell you how small it was. (laughs) Another thing is you may love material things. You may have a love of material things. You have a favorite glass or you have a favorite object. And if someone breaks it, you lose it. You lose it. What is that? That's a cell. You have a favorite glass. You have a favorite car. Your car is just like, oh, your car. When you park it into a parking stall, you don't park it like this, you park it like this. So that no one will hit your door, right? And if one of your kids goes boom and hits the door, you... Why? Because you love that object so much, so much, you see? I think this is very helpful. I think this is very helpful. Help me a lot. Anyway, but listen to this. Listen to this. Okay. Now, if you're shepherding someone who maybe is angry, listen to what Proverbs says. It says, a soft answer turns away anger. A soft answer turns away anger. Then it says this. Proverbs 25.15 says, a soft tongue can break the bone. A soft tongue can break the bone. In other words, if someone's with you and they have bone-like resistance toward you, what breaks the bone is not you're coming back at them like this, but having a soft tongue with a soft answer. That breaks the bone. We've seen that happen, right? We've seen that happen. Uh, Brother Lee told Francis and I one time, he said, Brothers, in, in taking care of this person, a soft tongue breaks the bone. I could never forget him saying that. That's a soft tongue breaks a bone. And that's true. That's true. Okay, now we come to leprosy. Two says leprosy is the most contaminating and damaging disease 
causing its victim to be isolated from God and from men. The cleansing of the leper signifies the recovering of the sinner to fellowship with God and with men. And with men. You know, leprosy comes from rebellion against God's authority. Rebellion against God's authority. And so, to heal leprosy is to heal someone, is to recover them to the fellowship of God and of men, and to bring them back under God's authority. Under God's authority. Remember when Miriam got leprosy, it was because she rebelled against God's authority, God's deputy authority, which was Moses, which was Moses at the time, which is in Numbers 12, 1 through 10, which is quite a story, quite a story. I'm looking at my time. I don't have time to read, read this, so you can read it later when you get home. Okay, three. The paralytic signifies a sinner who is paralyzed by sin, one who is unable to walk and move before God. Through the forgiveness of our sins in Christ's judicial redemption, we are able to walk and move by the Spirit in God's organic salvation. Isn't that wonderful? And I, I like this. You know, when, when, the, when the Lord was in Capernaum, it was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no longer any room, not even at the door. And he spoke to them the word. And, and four, four men came and they brought to him a paralytic. And because of the crowd, they were so desperate, they went up to the roof. They went up to the roof. And listen to this. They removed the roof. What kind of, what kind of audacity is that? They removed the roof. Can you imagine that? They removed the roof where he was. I mean, if I was the Lord, I would have went, what's going on up there? You know what I mean? But they removed the roof. And it says, and when they had dug through, they dug through the roof, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying, and Jesus, seeing their face, said to the paralytic, child, your sins are forgiven. I'll tell you, that is a vital group. Those four and the paralytic, that is a vital group. You're so desperate, you remove the roof, you dig through the roof, and you get the person of Jesus. And there's no religion there at all. Right? There's no, well, let's read this, let's go through this, blah, 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 blah. Right? You get the person to contact Jesus, right? That doesn't mean we don't read things. Don't get me don't misunderstand me. Okay. At the end, the Lord says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth. He said to the paralytic, To you I say, Rise, take up your mat, and go to your house. And he rose and immediately took up the mat and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, listen to what they said, we have never seen anything like this. We have never seen anything like this. So that was the reaction of the crowd. Okay, 4 says, the flow of blood, the issue of blood, signifies a life that cannot be retained. By touching the Lord, His divine power is transfused through the perfection of His humanity into us to become our healing. The God who dwells in unapproachable light became touchable in the slave Savior through his humanity for our salvation and enjoyment. And I want to emphasize that we are these people. We are, we are this collective person like this. And so the Lord healed this woman of a flow of blood. It says that there was a big crowd around him. And she had suffered from this hemorrhaging for 12 years. And listen to what it says. It says, she had suffered much under many physicians 
and had spent everything she had and had not benefited at all, but rather became worse, but rather became worse. And so she came up in the crowd behind him and she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be healed. So there's this big crowd around him. Everybody's touching him. You know what I mean? Everybody's touching his garments, crowding against him. And she, she just comes up behind him, and she just touches the hem of his garment. And immediately, she knows she's healed. And the Lord says this. He says, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing upon you, and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this. He says, but the woman, frightened and trembling, knew what had happened to her. And when she came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth, he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be well from your affliction. Brothers and sisters, we need to touch the Lord. If we touch him, we will be healed. You know, healed of lots of things. We have lots of sicknesses, right? We just need to touch him. Just touch him and we will be healed. You know, saints, related to, to uh, even a sickness, I'd like to share a verse with you that I was, I was convicted by and touched by, actually. It's 2 Chronicles 16, 12. And it's about King Asa, A-S-A. And it said he was diseased in his feet. And his disease was severe, was very severe. Now listen to what this statement says in the Word of God. It says, yet even in his disease... He pursued not Jehovah, but the physicians. Even in his disease, he pursued not Jehovah, but the physicians. In other words, the Lord was trying to get his attention. He was trying to say, Asa, I want you to pursue me. It's not that we don't go to doctors. You know, thank the Lord for doctors. Surely you, you, we need to see physicians. But he didn't pursue Jehovah. He pursued the physicians. So the physicians became Jehovah to him. You see the point? And so he ended up dying of that severe disease he had. But it was, a, it was striking to me that no matter what situation we're in, if we're in, if we're in some kind of sickness or some kind of circumstance, we have to pursue Jehovah in the middle of that. Pursue Jehovah in the middle of that. Pursue the Lord Jesus. B says, after the healing of the entire person, there is the Lord's exposure and cleansing of the real inner being, the heart. Then C says, in addition to, the, to this healing, there are three feedings by the Lord. The feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the Gentiles as the pet dogs under the table. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. And the feeding of the 4,000. I don't have any time. I'd like to talk about the pet dogs, but I think a lot of you know about that. Isn't that wonderful? The Gentiles were the pet dogs under the table. And the, the Jewish religionists, they, the Lord was the food on the table. And they just said, we don't want this food. And so the Syrophoenician woman, she said, Master, even the, even, the, even the dogs eat the crumbs off the master's table. And he says, woman, your faith is great. Go, your daughter's healed. Isn't that wonderful? So <laughs> Dick said, he called her a dog and she called her a crumb. That's what Dick Taylor said. That's right. He, he, she called him the crumbs off the table. That's what he is. Does. And we can even eat the crumbs off the table and enjoy him in that way and, and be healed and be healed by him. Okay. 
We read C. Now we come to D. After this collective person is healed, cleansed within, and fed by the Lord, he needs a specific healing of his listening organ, speaking organ, and seeing organ. Saints, we need to pray, Lord, heal my hearing, Lord. I want to hear you, Lord. Heal my speaking organ. I want to speak you. And heal my seeing organ. I want to see you. Open my eyes to see you. Open my ears to hear you. Open my mouth to speak you. We all need a healing of these three organs. He says, now on the Mount of Transfiguration, his ears are open to hear the Lord Jesus as the Father's Son, the Beloved, and his eyes are open to see Jesus only, to see that he is the unique and universal replacement, to be the unique constituent of the new man. Then let's read F all together. As their life and life supply, the Lord of all, God's Christ, the head over all things to the church, the body, the glorified one, the enthroned one, the one who is above all, and the one who fills all in all, to bring forth the new man as the reality of the kingdom of God, consummating in the new Jerusalem. Okay, finally, come to the final point, G. It says, finally, the Lord, as the resurrected and ascended Savior, preaches the gospel through his disciples as his reproduction for his universal spreading until he comes again to set up the kingdom of God on earth. Praise the Lord. And let's read the title all together. Living in the reality of the body of Christ according to the bird's eye view of the reality in Jesus in the gospel of Mark. Okay, let's pray with our neighbor for a minute or so, and then we can have some sharing.